Welcome to the podcast from Church of the Nazarene. Please subscribe to this podcast for the latest updates and new episodes. And you can also search for the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. We also invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 9 on our YouTube channel or Facebook Live. You can also join us in person at 9 or 1030 for our English services or 1145 for our Spanish service. We also invite you to join Celebrate Recovery every Monday night at 630. Thanks for listening. How are we doing this morning? Awesome, awesome. Hi, I'm Pastor Chris. I'm the pastor of student ministries here. And here's a really, um, let me tell you a story. A year ago today, um, I was actually at my parents' house packing, terrified, um, because I was getting ready to move to this town called Harrisonburg, Virginia, where later that same week, I will start as a pastor of students. And so, that to say is this week, I'll be celebrating one year of being on staff here, which is really, really exciting um, to me. But let me tell you, I was terrified. I was terrified because I knew some things had to happen. I was going to have to talk to people I didn't know. Um, And that is one of the most fearful things for me because I am such an introvert that talking to people I don't know just causes so much anxiety in me. And so I was just bracing myself of knowing I'm going to have to talk to people I don't know. Um, And now I can say a year later, it's still the same. I still am anxious when I have to talk to people I don't know. But I've gotten to know so many awesome people here. And so, you know, I just want you all to know it's been an honor getting to serve you this past year. And I'm excited for what's to come. And one new development this past year is that um, I started to drink coffee. Um, That wasn't the case while I was in college. Um, I just really didn't like coffee. And now I've, here we are. Um, I partially blame Pastor Olivia for that, um, but I'm still not there. I'm not, I'm not at black coffee just yet. My coffee has to be really, really sweet, but we'll see. Maybe in a year we'll have another, um, another update about that. But hey, this past month, we've been wandering with the Israelites after the exodus from Egypt. We've crossed the Red Sea with them, and we've seen how God has healed water, and we see how God has provided for the Israelites. God has provided manna and quail in the middle of the desert, and we've read and we've learned about how God showed up for a people who cried out to God, and we learned how God has empowered a man named Moses to stand up and guide the people of God out of Egypt and through the desert and towards the promised land. We've read that in the desert, in the midst of barrenness, God can do the impossible, that God can turn what's bitter into what is sweet, and that God can provide for a hungry yet seemingly unsatisfied people. And even though people complained and were unsure of God's faithfulness, God kept showing The book of Exodus deals with really two important questions in the biblical narrative. See, the Israelites had been in Egypt for so long. Some scholars suggest it might have been up to 400 years that the Israelites had been removed from their homeland and have found themselves in foreign land. And so for those who had experienced the power of God in Genesis, it had been so many years. The people that experienced the power of God firsthand were long gone. And so for many of them, they have only heard stories of what the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, what that God had done. And now we fast forward. And here we are in the middle of the desert with the wandering people of God. And to them, God is trying to answer those very important questions. God is trying to show them who God is and in light of that, who the Israelites are. 
What does it mean for God to be God and for the people to be the people of God? This is what the story of Exodus is trying to unpack. The story of the wandering people of God deeply wrestle with these questions, and God's been teaching them this as we've been wandering with them through the desert. God is teaching them that God is compassionate and that God is powerful and that God is healer and that God is provider and that God is faithful even when the people are not faithful. And this is evident over and over again through the story of Exodus. And then the Israelites have to make a significant stop in their journey at Mount Sinai. It is believed that at this point the Israelites have been wandering for about three months. And so they stop at this mountain in the desert, and little do they know is that they're about to set camp for about a year at the foot of this mountain. And the Israelites have been wandering, and so they show up here to this mountain. And Exodus 19 sets the scene for us and informs us that the mountain was made a holy place by the presence of God, that God came down from heaven and made the mountain holy, that the land was set apart by God for the purposes of God. And this is where we're going to pick up the story in Exodus 20. And here is where they will receive what we know now as the Ten Commandments. Later at Mount Sinai, later the author of Deuteronomy would refer to the Ten Commandments again. So we'll be in Exodus 20. We'll be jumping around a little bit in the story, so you're free to follow along in your physical copy of Scripture on the screens or on the version event on your phone. And so this is what the Word of God says. It says, And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And here the commandments start. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water below. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Let's pray. God, as we come to your word this morning, we pray, God, that this may be fresh for us today. We pray, God, that our hearts may be open and our minds may be ready to receive what you have for us. So may we have eyes to see and ears to hear the story that we may already know, God, speak to us through, through it, God. And so we anticipate what you have to teach us this morning. And so we pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. So if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard these Ten Commands before, probably plenty, plenty of times. But if you haven't grown up in the church, it's likely you've heard of them or maybe some parody of them, like the Ten Commandments of hunting or fishing or friendship. The Ten Commandments, along with the other texts in the Old Testament, become known as the law, a moral code to which the Israelite people ought to live their lives by. 
It made sense as it's included in this narrative. All ancient people had some kind of moral code that they ought to abide to. But God had a specific purpose with the Ten Commandments. It was determined to mold the Israelites, if they allowed, into the people God has called him to be. And so as they left their slavery in Egypt and made their way through the desert towards the promised land, it could have been said that Israelites were enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years following the death of Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis. But like I said earlier, one of their challenges was to believe and to trust in the God that maybe some of them have only heard stories about. See, in this oral society, the stories of what God did, of who God is, what God did through Abraham and through Isaac and through Jacob were passed down through stories, verbally. So people knew. People knew about this. People knew what had happened, what God had done. And now God has shown up again because God is faithful and because God provides. And God is telling them, you know, you spent a lot of time in Egypt. And maybe, maybe you've gotten a little used to the Egyptian world. View. And so God wants to present their challenge and start molding them to what it means to be part of the kingdom of God and not part of the empire of Egypt. And this is where the Ten Commandments come into play as God molds the hearts of those God has called the chosen people. The people chosen to reflect the character of God to a world that desperately needs to experience it. And God understood that this wouldn't be possible if the people were still caught up in the systems of Egypt. And we see this tension later when the nation of Israel asks for a king. God wants them to understand that the kingdom of God works differently than the nations of this world. And so the Ten Commandments shortlisted are no other gods, no idols. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Take a Sabbath. Honor your parents. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't be jealous. It's a list of 10 things, most of which are things that you ought to avoid, and some of them are an invitation to things to participate in. And although the commandment lists 10 things, it really serves two purposes. The first commandments, the first half of the commandments focus on who God is. And the last ones, the last few commandments, really have a focus on other people. The commandments, as listed, tell us that the most important thing is to be centered on who God is. God is God. No one else is. God is infinite, capable of doing what is humanly impossible, of providing and of guiding. God is who God says God is. That's what was revealed to Moses much earlier in the Exodus story. And before we continue, it's really important to make this note, that whenever we open scripture, whenever we read any passage in scripture, we have to ask some really important questions about the text we're reading. We have to ask who wrote this, we have to ask when did this person write this, and why. See, it's believed, some scholars suggest, that Exodus was written many years after it actually happened, specifically when the Israelites found themselves in exile in Babylon. The author of Exodus had the intention to remind the exiled people of God who God is and who they are in light of that. In other words, the author wants to tell them, remember, remember long ago when we were stuck in Egypt and how God saved us and how God taught us what it meant to be the people of God? Remember that? Well, remember, as we find ourselves in this foreign land once again, it's not the empire of Egypt, it's not the desert, it's now the empire of Babylon. Remember what God has taught you. Remember the values of the kingdom. 
And so the Ten Commandments served as that reminder, served this twofold purpose. The first was that it served as a reminder that the Israelite people were called to be centered on God, to have no other gods, to have no idols, to not take the Lord's name in vain, etc. But what does that mean for us today? This moral law was written for the Israelite people. What does this text being written and read and told by ancient people in exile have to do with us today? Thousands of years later, half the world away. It means, and it teaches us, it teaches us that it means that to be the people of God, we have to be centered on God. It teaches us that we are called to be a God-centric community. See, in the story of Exodus, God is telling the Israelites that they are called to be a community centered on God, on God's power, on God's provision, on God's compassion and love and grace, everything that makes God God. It doesn't matter. God is telling them it doesn't matter that you came from Egypt and that you're wandering through the desert and that you find yourself at the foot of this mountain. Regardless of where you find yourself, you and I are called to be God-centric. Trusting and having full confidence that God always has our best interest in mind and in turn being faithful to the one who is always faithful. When we are centered on God, we allow God to transform us into the people we've been called to be. When we are centered on God, God reveals in us the things that we need to hand over and allow the Spirit to start working on. When we are centered on God, we allow God to shed light into the darkness in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, in our homes, and families, and communities. When we are centered on God, everything changes. We are no longer on our own, but being empowered by the one who has the resurrection power. We are called to be a God-centric community. And the commandments were designed to focus the Israelites on that reality because it's so easy to be centered on anything else. Sometimes we want to go back to where God took us out of because that's what's familiar. The Israelites struggle with this reality. Some of the Israelites wanted to go back to Egypt because the truth is they were Egyptian-centric. They wanted to go back to Egypt because that is what they had known. And later, once the Israelites developed their own nation and their own kingdom, some of the Israelites will become Israelite-centric, which the prophets had lots to say about against that idea. Because the truth is they were called to be a God-centric community, just like we are today. And I wonder, I wonder how many of us sometimes feel that way, feel the need of wanting to be a community or want to be an individual that's centered on something else. I mean, I know. It would be so much easier for me in my life if God just did the things I wanted God to do. And it would be so much easier if God did things the way how I wanted God to do it or when I want it to happen. Wouldn't that be awesome? I think all my life problems would be solved. It's not true. The issue is that I am no longer God-centric when I attempt to order God around. Instead, I become self-centric. And it's true in my life. I have to actively resist putting myself at the center of who I've been called to be. And the invitation is the same for all of us because you and I are called to be God-centric so that our community can also be God-centric. And sometimes I wonder if we've also just become so concerned about being empire-centric. We are more focused on the political agenda of our country than the transformative work of the kingdom of God. See, the truth is we aren't called to be American-centric 
community. We are called to be a God-centric community. As Christians, we're called to follow God, which means that our ultimate allegiance is in God and in God's kingdom, not a country or a political party or a righteous opinion or a pastor or a leader. Everything we do and everything we believe in and our actions and our thoughts and our words must point back to God because we are called to be a God-centric community. That was the first challenge of the totality of the commandments to the Israelite people then. And it is the challenge for us today, asking the question, where are we centered? Where have we found our identity in? So where are you centered this morning? Are you centered on the things of the world? Are you centered on yourself and your wants? Are you centered on your past and your hurt? Are you centered anywhere that isn't God? The invitation is to recognize that and to confess it and then to be centered on God as we journey together as a community where God is leading us as we're doing everything we can to be centered on who God is, a God of providence, of God of compassion, of undeserved grace, and of mercy, and of unconditional love. And then the second half of the commandment focuses on people, on other people. Particularly, these commandments say things that we shouldn't do to other people, like don't bear false witness about someone else. In other words, don't gossip, don't lie, don't talk about what you don't know. So the first, the first are centered, and it's an invitation for us to be centered on who God is. And the lateral ones are oriented towards other people. The truth is, because we are called to be a God-centered community, we are called to be a people-oriented community. See, the Israelites were called to be a light to the nations, to show the world who God is. So as they centered themselves on God, they were called to orient themselves towards others. In the same way, we are called to be a people-oriented community, the salt and the light of the world, a city on a hill, a source of hope for all. See, the Ten Commandments suggest that if you participate in these activities, if you're stealing and if you're lying, you can't be a good witness of the kingdom of God to other people. It's true. You and I cannot be good witnesses of the kingdom of God to someone we are lying about or stealing from or wishing any evil upon. It's easy. It's really, really easy to be faithful witnesses to people that look like us, to people that think like us, to people that agree with us politically and theologically. It's so easy. But the question here for the Israelites is also, what does it mean to be faithful witnesses to people that don't look like you or think like you or agree with you politically or theologically or with people that have different lifestyles? We cannot be good witnesses of the kingdom of God if when we see other people, we're just full of hatred and disgust. We just can't. Because if we reach that, we've lost the center of who we've been called to be. We have moved away from being God-centric. In other words, you can't be a good witness of the kingdom to someone you're lying about or stealing from. We cannot be faithful witnesses of God's love if we cannot stand the people we have been called to be faithful witnesses to. To be people-oriented means that we communicate hope and life and love to the people around us consistently, unconditionally. But I get it. People are hard to love. And sometimes you just want to, my generation would say, sometimes you just want to throw hands with people. But regardless love people 
anyway. If you've been paying attention to the news this week, you've probably noticed that the Supreme Court of our country has been in session and multiple rulings have surfaced, including the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And as you've seen, the ruling has caused tension. As people agree or disagree with what's right and what's wrong in the debates, if you've noticed, have been happening all around us. And in that tension, regardless of where you find yourself, we are called to be oriented to other people, to listen well, to love well, to advocate well, to be the hands and the feet of Christ in a way that demonstrates the love of Christ in all situations. That's not always easy. And scripture doesn't tell us that it's going to be easy. But in the tension of it all, in the reality of it all, we are called to love anyway. God's intent was to instill in the Israelites a deep value for other people. That regardless of who they are and where they've been, that they are treated as people made in the image of God, capable and deserving to experience the love of God. God's intent for us is the same today, to instill in us the kingdom value of people. That regardless of who people are and what they've done or where they've been, that they may be treated as people made in the image of God, as people created to be loved and to love and created to experience the fullness of who God is. These commandments, this law represented by Moses is also mentioned in the New Testament. And so let's set the scene in the New Testament. The teachers of the law were trying to find some ground to accuse Jesus and so they were set to ask him a series of difficult questions, which Jesus answers really, really well, including questions about the Roman imperial tax. And so we're told that an expert of the law came up with a brilliant idea and said, oh, I got the question that will get Jesus. And so in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, we read this. The expert of the law asked, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus here is telling the people the twofold purposes of the commandments, of the law. Love God and love people. Then Jesus reiterates these powerful words of what it means to love God and love others and shows us through his testimony. And then he says, all the law, everything the religious elite, the people listening to this answer, everything they spent their entire lives studying, and everything the prophets had to say, hang on these two things, that we are called to love God and to love others. The invitation of the commandments affirmed by Christ is to be God-centric and people-oriented. And listen, this is really, really exciting for me because the Word of God is just, you know, well, well divine. Uh, and in Matthew 22, Jesus announces this beautiful reality of what the commandments meant to love God and to love others and tells us that the reality is that the law and the prophets hold true to these things. And that's a bold claim, Jesus. Bold. But if we rewind just a few chapters from Matthew 22... Two, something comes full circle when we go back to chapter 17, and this is really, really exciting. 
We read in chapter 17, the first five verses, we read this. It says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led him up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then in the following verses, we learn that Moses and Elijah disappear. But in chapter 22, Jesus tells us the law that the commandments and the prophets point to the call to be in a God-centric and people-oriented community. And here in Matthew 17, we see the beautiful collision of the law and of the prophets and of the fulfillment of the law. See, the truth is, and we have plenty of evidence as we read the Old Testament, that the Israelites didn't really follow the law as closely as they were called to. In many ways, it didn't allow God to transform them into the people they've been called to be. So God sent the prophets, like Elijah and like Amos and Isaiah, to remind the people of the law, to remind them of what God had called them to be, but also to point to something coming. The law reminded people, reminded the Israelites, reminds us of something we don't like. The law reveals our inability to actually fulfill the law. The law reveals our sin and our self-centeredness and our self-removal from the presence of God. The law demonstrates that we do need saving because we could not do it on our own. And because on our own, we fall short of the glory of God. And so as the prophets pointed back to this law, they pointed towards the future as well. Towards the day, the day that the law will once be fulfilled. And so here in Matthew 17, we have the law represented by Moses, the relation of the kingdom that is God-centric and people-oriented. And we have the prophets represented by Elijah who reminded the people of the law and the pending fulfillment, both with Christ. And I have to imagine that Peter got this because Peter knew the Old Testament well and Peter knew the implications of what he was seeing. And the Gospel of Matthew written towards the Jewish audience, the people reading this knew the implications of what it meant for the law and for the prophet to be with Jesus and for God to say, listen to Jesus. The voice announced, this is my son whom I love with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to Christ. For Christ is the fulfillment of the law that we would never be able to complete on our own. So what does Christ have to say about the law and about the prophets? Love God and love others. Because at the end of the day, we are saved by the one who fulfilled the law. Because we, we get the full picture. We know what happens after Exodus and through the Old Testament. We get the New Testament. We know the fulfillment of the law, that God through Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit fulfills the law so that we may rest in victory, the victory of Christ. And now both the law and its fulfillment remind us of the reality 
that we are called towards, that we are called to be centered on God and oriented towards people. When we are God-centric, God saves and transforms us into the people we've been called to be. In that space, we can be transformed by God. And then we are tasked. We are tasked to love others well while still being centered on who God is. We are tasked to demonstrate the love of God to others by bringing hope. We can't fulfill the law for ourselves, and we can't fulfill it for others, so our job is to allow God to transform us. My job is to allow God to transform me, and for you to allow God to transform you so that we may be faithful witnesses of the God that is faithful, so that we may run towards people that need to hear what our God can do. We are transformed by God so we can go and tell others, hey, listen, there is a God who is the God of providence. There is a God that is the God that overflows with compassion and love and grace. And it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done or where you think you're going. You too can experience the transformative power of this God. And so we must live our lives in a way that points others to God that we may allow God to flow into and through us so well that we may be walking mirrors of the kingdom of God, where we are known, where we are known not for what we're against, but what we're for, where we are known that we are for life and for love and for hope and for grace and for compassion, where we love people well, where we love people so well that they want to know, where they want what we have. And the beautiful reality is that they can also get what we have. They can also come to the presence of God. So the question before us this morning is, are we God-centric? Are our lives centered on who God has called us to be? And in turn, are we people-oriented, called to reflect the character of God to a world that desperately needs to experience it. So are we God-centric? Are we people-oriented that the commandments call us to be? Let's pray, God. God, we lament the ways in which we have failed to be God-centric and people-oriented. We confess, God, that we are not perfect and there have been moments in our lives that we have failed to be centered on who you are and we have failed to run towards people that need to experience your love. We lament and we confess and we ask forgiveness for that, God. We ask forgiveness. We ask forgiveness when we have denied others hope. And so we pray that we may have the courage and the boldness to run with the fire that you have given us so that everyone, everyone that comes across us may feel your love that flows in and through us. And so God, reveal to us this morning what is in our hearts that isn't centered on who you are. Reveal to us what is it that we are so obsessed with that isn't you. Reveal that to us so that we may take care of that so we can remove that from the throne of our lives and give you room to work. And as you word, God, reveal to us the people you are calling us to run to. 
Reveal to us the people in our midst, in our schools, in our jobs, at the aisle, at the grocery store. Reveal to us the people that you are calling us towards so that they too may get to experience what you have so graciously given to us. And so we pray that as we think about the Ten Commandments and as we wander through the desert with the Israelites, that you may remind us that you are molding us to be a people that are God-centric and a people that are people-oriented. And so we pray all of this, all of this in the name, in the name of Christ. Thank you so much for listening today. Go ahead and subscribe to our channel for updates and new episodes. And if you have any questions about our church or ministries, go ahead and email us at info at cotnaz.org.